Thank you, church, for this opportunity to be with you all. We have been looking forward to this for a long time. And When Tim called several months back and said, hey, we want to try to uh, get you and Rebecca to do a revival and Jerry to come back, I said, yes, yes, let's figure it out when we can make it happen. They wanted the boys to be able to come, and uh, you all have continued to pray for us as we've left here, but you helped pray Zach here. Uh, we were six months pregnant when we left here and uh, kind of broke everybody's heart with that. Sorry about that. God had other plans. Um, but we've been looking forward to being back because uh, this is such a, a special place for us. Uh, I think every pastor just has a special relationship with their first pastorate. And uh, we just got to see God do so many things here. Uh, Rebecca and I had only been married about two years when we moved here. So we were young, married, and we're, it was kind of our first adventure on our own, seven hours away from home, and uh, really seeing what God could do. And, and we got to see him do a lot of things. And we left 11 years ago this month, and I was laughing as we do music. iPads didn't exist then iPhones came out in 2007, I think. We certainly didn't have those here in Forestburg because no one had cell reception. Uh, we barely had Internet here at the church, and um, email was was sketchy. But, man, you know, so many things change. Um, we were moving from here to First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana, where we still serve. And uh, I was excited about that pastoral call um, because we were moving back home Um uh, we were we're in shouting distance of the college Rebecca and I met at. Uh, we're back near uh, our parents, and and we knew people in the area. And I was excited about that, but I'm not sure that I really knew everything I was getting into. I think looking back, my naivete probably helped the Holy Spirit work in me a little bit, so that I wouldn't really realize everything that I was stepping into. I stepped into a church. That had declined over my entire lifetime. It began with a, a pastoral issue in like 1977. I was born in 76. And there was just a slow, almost unnoticeable decline for about 30 years. And then uh, there was an implosion that uh, where the church fractured in several different directions. And the former pastor who uh, I pre- followed. Um, He started a new church and took a few people and then other people just scattered to different churches in the area and then some people went nowhere and then a few people stayed behind at the church. And on our first Sunday there in Pineville, we had 172 people in Sunday school. Now, from where we were here at Forestburg, that was a, a, a leap up. We were running about 100 here in Sunday school when we moved back to Louisiana. But 172, this uh, was not many when we were facing a million dollars in old debt. We had uh, over 100,000 square feet of facilities to keep up. Our utility bills, uh, over $10,000 a month. Uh, and I realized a big challenge in those first days. The first was on that very first Sunday, Rebecca and I attended one, the one young adult Sunday school class. And uh, that was for everyone from 20 to 50 years old. And there were eight people in that young adult class. And we were two of them. Consequently, there were very few children and youth. Uh, also, my grandma attended that day. Many of you knew her. And um, 
She was 85 at the time, and after the service, Momo said, Stu, there sure are a lot of blue hairs here. And I thought, great, if my 85-year-old grandma sees all the old people here, what are the younger people seeing? And what they were seeing was an old, dead church. And I went from a vibrant church here with children and youth and a young adult class that had way more than uh, eight people and the insanity of Wednesday nights with uh, children everywhere and running to St. Joe and getting pizza and having to beat kids off of their third piece and all that kind of stuff and to this place where we had room after room that was just empty. Entire floor of our education building was completely empty. Um, Every month, money was tight. For about every finance committee meeting of that first year, I heard, well, you know, we hired a full-time pastor. I was like, great. (laughs) I'm sorry I'm such a financial drain on the church, you know. Uh, The building suffered from about a decade of uh, neglected maintenance. But I learned something in those days, and that is that God knew what was going on. And he wanted to rebuild our church, and he was already working to rebuild the church. And he did, and he still is. In those early days, people joined when there was absolutely no reason for them to join. I'm going to tell you a story about those uh, in a later message. Money came in when there was nowhere for it to come from. And slowly but surely we rebuilt. Now, our numbers are nowhere near the church's glory days from the 1950s or 1960s. We're nowhere near the largest church in our area. But we now run 400 instead of 170. And uh, we paid off that old million dollars in debt. And then we just finished uh, two years ago a five and a half million dollar renovation. And now we have three and a half million dollars of debt. Um, I couldn't even fathom millions, uh, you know, when we were here. But that's just the faithfulness of what God's done. I couldn't fathom a million, a million in debt, much less five million in renovations ten years ago. We have four full-time ministers, two part-time, and additional support staff. Every Sunday we have guests in attendance. We're laying groundwork for the next steps of what God wants to do in our region of Louisiana. And so as I've been praying about these service with you, as we seek to, to see a reset here in Forestburg from the Lord, I've been led to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this revival is not intended to be an evangelistic crusade. In our Southern Baptist um, idea, that's, we have a revival and it's evangelistic crusade. That's not really what um, Tim is feeling the Lord was wanting. It's not really, uh, it's really not my giftedness, to be quite honest. Uh, it's, but what God has called us to do is a true church revival. When we have an evangelistic crusade, we're really viving people. They, a revival means you're revived. You've already been vived. We're just reviving you. So that's what we're, that's what our focus is here. Um, we want this church to do great things. And Nehemiah fits our purpose well. Um, you know, just to put it out there, one reason this is called Reset, it's no secret, this church has been through some difficult times in the last few years. And, you know, when, when we left, never in a million years would I have thought that there would have been not one but two splits, uh, to follow our pastorate, and I expected the next pastor to come in and, and the church to keep right on growing and, and things to just go. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. But you can't dwell in the past. You have 
to move forward. You have to reset and move forward. And so from the outset, I want to say to reset is not to rewind. It's not to rewind. Jerry and I aren't leading this revival to rewind the tape uh, 11 years. You can't go back. You have to move forward. And besides, even if God would have left us here for 10 or 11 years, the church would have changed. Our church has changed completely in the last 10 years that we've been there. It's a completely different place. This is a completely different place, even if you hadn't gone through those things. So to, to reset is to get back ready to go again. Think of it this way. Every night you reset your alarm clock because one day is over and a new day is going to begin. And so you reset that alarm clock so that you can awake refreshed and ready for what God has in store for you the next day. Reset is what you do when you want to move forward into a new day of God's work. So let's move forward. The book of Nehemiah is all about rebuilding with determined faith. Many of the principles that we see demonstrated in Nehemiah are principles you will be able to follow as you rebuild. And there are certainly principles that we followed the last 11 years at our church. But I don't want the application of this message or even this entire series to just be for the church as a whole. There's also individual application as well. O.S. Hawkins in his book about Nehemiah says... Uh, the rebuilding in the book of Nehemiah is one that touches all of us as we journey through different periods of life. Many of you have relationships that may need to be rebuilt in your life. Uh, some of you may be in the process of rebuilding a business. Or some of you may be uh, rebuilding after the death of a loved one. Or you're rebuilding a marriage. Or whatever God is doing in your life. And maybe we're just rebuilding hope for our future. So while this message series is primarily for the people of God who will be rebuilding the church, listen carefully to how the Holy Spirit will apply the messages to your own life. Because the Holy Spirit does some interesting things like that. We preach in one direction, but he starts applying in multiple directions. So as we open the book of Nehemiah, the city of Jerusalem is in deplorable condition and things have been that way for 140 years. Everything. How did that happen? Well, just to kind of review our Israel history, you had three early kings at the beginning of the monarchy of Israel. You had King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon. After the death of King Solomon, the, the third king of Israel, the kingdom of Israel divided into Israel and Judah. You had the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria, and it was ruled by mostly wicked kings. And then finally, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and destroyed uh, that kingdom and took the people away into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah existed for a little while longer. There were more godly kings in Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. And it existed a while until finally in 586 B.C. the Babylonians came in and destroyed this city-state of Jerusalem. They tore down that beautiful temple that Solomon had built. They tore down the city walls. They leveled the city to rubble. They burned the city gates. And the leading Jews were taken captive into Babylon. During the 140 years from the city's destruction to the time of Nehemiah, there had been several efforts 
to repair the city. Uh, a few years after Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, some guys named Zerubbabel, Sheshbazar, and Jeshua the priest led in a relocation of a return of some 50,000 people to Jerusalem. And those people, when they got there, started to rebuild the temple. Unfortunately, after they got the foundation of the temple laid, they were met with some obstacles and they stopped the building. But then two prophets that you're familiar with, Haggai and Zechariah, came in and they encouraged the people to complete the project of building the temple. And so they finally had the temple rebuilt and dedicated nearly 25 years after those guys had started rebuilding. Then another 60 years later, Ezra came and reinstituted the, reinstituted the law in Jerusalem and still another 13 years passed and the rest of the city lay in shambles and in need of rebuilding. And at that time, Nehemiah was serving the Persian king. Now, as a faithful Jew, Nehemiah knew the condition of Jerusalem was bad, but he apparently didn't know how bad until he heard a report. And that's where we get the report is in the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1. As we open that text, Nehemiah is serving that king of Persia in the capital of Persia in Susa, which was 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iran. It's the month of Kislev, which is roughly our December. And Nehemiah's brother Hanani and some other guys have come to give uh, Nehemiah a report. They've traveled some thousand miles to meet with Nehemiah and report to him what's happening in their hometown, so to speak, of Jerusalem, their native town. And they share about what's happening. And I'm sure the conversation came about much like it does if if I talk to somebody from Forestburg. I say, hey, how are things going in Forestburg? And then they report. It was kind of, this is a special place. And they share. And what Nehemiah hears floors him. Look at verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now things were worse than Nehemiah really could have imagined. The citizens of Jerusalem were, as it says, in great trouble and disgrace. There's a lot of meaning in that little phrase there. First, it means that the city is defenseless against its enemies. The city's wide open for attack. I mean, in that time period, a wall around a city was vital for survival. If you didn't have a wall, you were open for attack from anybody. And so then that was the first reason they were in disgrace. But the second was that it also created a psychological problem. The presence of a city wall meant that a city was secure. And it meant that it had status. But the absence of a wall caused the citizens to feel vulnerable and to feel shame over what had happened to their city. And so as the men reported, the absence of the wall had brought great trouble in that they were vulnerable to attack and disgrace in that they had shame. Things were in bad shape. And an honest assessment was We have a huge problem. And so that brings us to our first principle that I want us to see today about resetting and rebuilding the church. Before you can rebuild, you must make an honest assessment. 
Anytime you start to rebuild, you have to make an honest assessment. You have to admit the need. You have to confess the mess. You have to name the problems. And, and that's not being defeatist. That's just being realist. It's, it's like when you use a map. You may know where you are. You've got to know where you are before you can then go to the next place. So we have to face the root problems and address them honestly and patiently with wisdom and understanding. And you've been doing this. And, and you know that the task is great, just like when Nehemiah heard the news of Jerusalem. And so when Nehemiah heard the honest assessment, how did he react? Well, did he say, oh, man, that's too bad. Sounds like you got a mess on your hands. Did he just kind of leave the mess in their hands? Or did he say, oh, well, stuff happens. Deal with it. Was he flippant? Did he say, hmm. Sounds like you guys better move somewhere else. Was he defeatist? How did he react? Well, look at verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah wasn't flippant or defeatist in his reaction. He didn't leave the mess in their hands. No, as a fellow Jew who loved the holy city of Jerusalem, Nehemiah reacted with brokenness. He sat down and wept. Nehemiah's brokenness demonstrates that he had a heart for the task of rebuilding that lay ahead. Now, please note, at this time, Nehemiah doesn't know God's going to call him to rebuild the church. The guys who are given this report don't know that Nehemiah is going to be called by God to rebuild the city wall. They're simply reporting the state of the city, and Nehemiah is simply reacting to the honest assessment. But note something else, and this is our second principle. Not only before you can rebuild must you make an honest assessment, but before you can rebuild, you must have a heart for the task. Before rebuilding can take place, it takes a leader And a people who have a heart for the task. I imagine these grown men sitting in that palace just weeping over the state of their city. Nehemiah himself had probably never seen the grandeur of Jerusalem. In fact, he'd never seen it. The city had been in ruins for 140 years. But he knew that the scriptures... He knew of the wonderful presence of God that had been in that city before. And he mourned the loss of that even though he'd never seen it. He was grieved by the state of things. And that they had been allowed to be in such a state for so long. Even though Nehemiah had never set foot in Jerusalem, he loved that city. It was his city. And therefore, when he heard the bad news, he wept. You can never rebuild Until you have a heart for the task. And that heart comes from weeping over the ruins. As you look ahead at the task before you, you could find yourself sometimes discouraged and see only disappointments and and maybe some difficulties that have brought you to this point. But you have to remember, every problem is an opportunity to prove God's power. Every opportunity is an opportunity to prove God's power. Every day we encounter countless golden opportunities 
that Chuck Swindoll says are brilliantly disguised as insurmountable problems. I'll tell you the same thing I've told First Baptist Pineville. Yeah, our church has had problems. But note the past tense of that. Has had. Does that mean we're never going to have some kind of issue before? No, we'll talk about how to deal with those in the future. But we can't dwell in the past. We say, yeah, there have been those things. They have happened, but they're over. People messed up. Maybe you messed up. But now, let God prove His power in those problems and do a new thing. I'm ready to see God shine the beacon of His love. I've been excited to hear reports of of new things that God is doing here. I'm ready to see Satan defeated. I love to get the emails and see the Facebook posts about stuff that's happening here. I want to see those insurmountable obstacles be conquered. We want to see that happen. The task is great, sure, but God is greater. And when we make an honest assessment and we admit the failings, we've already started laying the foundation for the rebuilding Yeah, you've got to spend some time weeping, but you can't sit around and cry forever. And Nehemiah doesn't do that. We're about to see the third principle. Not only do we need to make an honest assessment, not only do we need to have a heart for the rebuilding, but third, before you can rebuild, you must go to your knees. Our heart to rebuild should lead us to our knees. Nehemiah's brokenness led him to his knees. You saw there at the end of verse 4 where he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer and fasting. He's broken. He's burdened. And he takes it to the Lord. Our concern has to drive us to our knees. Your concern can lead people in a lot of different ways. And it's not always to prayer. Sometimes concern drives some people to complain and just start pointing out all that's wrong. You know, you've heard those kind of things, you know, Elmira, I'm concerned about our church. You know, I just don't like how blah, 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 blah. But complaining does no good to address the concern. Uh, Some people deal with their concern with depression. Oh, I know. We're done for. We're just done for. The church is terrible. I don't know. It's awful. It's just not like it used to be. But that doesn't do any good. And other people deal with concern with Phariseeism. Oh, The Lord has written Ichabod over this place. The glory of the Lord has departed. I'm going to go to another church that's perfect. But that does no good. And if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll make it imperfect. You've heard that before. What, What concern should do and must do is drive us to our knees. Nehemiah knew something that we need to remember about our God. God does not want to leave us in our mess. Individually, corporately, however. God is all about redemption. God is all about healing. God is all about forgiveness. Even though Israel had largely brought this situation upon themselves, God did not cancel his covenant with his people. 
Instead, he stepped in to redeem. And once repentance comes to our hearts and lives, God's ready to forgive and heal. And so after weeping, Nehemiah apparently spends days in prayer and fasting, aligning his life with God's will, his will, God's will, coming together, his heart, God's heart, coming together. And then he prays this specific prayer that is recorded in verses 5 through 11. And this prayer gives us a few things to keep in mind as we pray. First, we should affirm God's faithfulness. Nehemiah's prayer begins where every prayer should begin. And that is with praise of the one hearing that prayer. Nehemiah begins saying, Oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Do you see how Nehemiah is just lauding the praise on the God? Telling God all that he is. Nehemiah affirms who God is and, and his faithfulness to keep his covenant. And then he moves into the next part. Where second, we should acknowledge our failings and sins. Nehemiah says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. We've got to acknowledge Our own failings and sins. Nehemiah confesses the sins of the Israelites. He goes back 140 years to those who caused the original problem. And then he even admits that he and his father's family are also sinful. Families that were no way involved 140 years ago. But Nehemiah acknowledges that the commands, decrees, and laws of God have not been kept. When we're in the process of rebuilding, there are not just things that need to be done. There are things that need to be undone as well. Habits need to be broken. Hearts need to be healed. Brokenness needs to occur. Confession needs to take place. Forgiveness needs to be offered. And this is why for some people it's easier to just start over than it is to rebuild. It's easier to just jump ship than it is to try to see God do a new work again. But if we want to rebuild, our prayers must include this acknowledgement of our failings and sins. And as we we come into a place that's rebuilding as newer participants in that, we have to do what Nehemiah says. We have to link. And it can't be they. It has to be we. Third, we should remind God of his promises In verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even in your exile, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah there taps into the covenant name of God. The dwelling for my name, the idea of the name Yahweh. And Nehemiah is reminding God that he keeps his promises. God is pleased to hear us remind him of his promises. To let him know that we know what he said he will do. 
And so he responds positively when we repeat in our prayers the things that he has taught us and promised to us. If you want to rebuild, you've got to make that honest assessment. You have to have a heart for the task. You have to go to your knees. But the final principle is very important. That is, before you can rebuild, you must look forward. Question. Was this mess in Jerusalem Nehemiah's fault? No. Was it even Nehemiah's daddy's fault? No. Frankly, was it even Nehemiah's granddaddy's fault? No. But Nehemiah personally had absolutely nothing to do with the state of the city of Jerusalem, yet he wept and accepted personal responsibility, and then he looked forward. Far too often, that's not what people do. Instead, People refuse to look forward and to take personal responsibility. And instead, they play the blame game. If anyone could have played the blame game, Nehemiah could have. Well, if Nebuchadnezzar had simply not besieged the city in 586 B.C., we wouldn't be here today. True, but that doesn't do any good. If the kings of Israel hadn't been so wicked, true, If Solomon's son had not been such an idiot and split the kingdom, well, sure. Fast forward, if Zerubbabel, maybe if Zerubbabel had been a little more zealous about rebuilding and had kept on pushing after the temple was rebuilt, maybe things would be different. Or, hey, how about the big one? Just pull out the big guns. If God had not allowed this to happen, we wouldn't be here today. Nehemiah could have blamed others all day long, but he didn't. Nehemiah knew that those who play the name game never get to see the end game. If you play the blame game, you never get to move forward to see the end game. Friends, you can't play the blame game. You can't blame a former pastor. You can't blame former or current church members. You can't blame another church. You can't even blame the devil. You can only accept responsibility and look forward. I'll admit, in those early days in Pineville, and sometimes now, I found myself frustrated and even angry with the people who did the tearing down. Because we were dealing with stuff that should have been dealt with. Like, this is not what I'm called to do. I'm not called to fix the air conditioner that should have been fixed 30 years ago. But praise Jesus, we fixed it. You know, in my early days, I kept hearing stories about the farmer pastor. And I, I said, told Rebecca, I want a T-shirt that says my name is not and print the man's name on it. There was no trust. And I wanted to blame, but I couldn't blame. Because the blaming does no good. Early on in my ministry there, the Lord laid these two thoughts upon me. One... You can't walk forward if you're always looking backwards. Because if you try to walk forward by looking backwards, you're going to just trip and fall. He also said you can't walk forward if you're always looking down, shaking your head in frustration. Because the same thing will happen. You can't turn around and look backward. You've got to reset and look forward. 
you can't be looking down and, and frustrated and, oh, there's just, we got these things to do and this thing. Ah, we gonna, you've got to lift up and say, God, what's the next thing you want us to do? And we're going to do that. And then what's the next thing, God? And we're going to do that. And we're going to celebrate every little victory upon, along the way as God gets the glory and as he rebuilds the place. Truly, the key to reset and a rebuild is prayer. And you've been doing that. You had, what, a 24-hour prayer vigil last night. Thank you for those of you who participated in that. Those of you who had the wee morning hours, if you're getting a nap right now, that's okay. The prayer is important. And as a church, you can be encouraged because God has already started the rebuilding process. He's doing that work. But the task ahead of you is one that will take many years. I mean, it's taken us... I told somebody we've been there 11 years, the end of August. And I told somebody the other day, I said, it felt like the first 10 years was just laying foundation. Just turning the old rusty ship around. Just getting ready to move forward. That's a lot of life investment. But I can see what God is getting ready to do. So I want to encourage you to pray and pray and continue to pray. So before we go into a time of invitation, I want us to just have a season of prayer. Just make that spot there in your pew, your altar right there in front of you. And go before the Lord. And here's what I want you to ask him. and Say, Lord, how do you need me to reset? How do you need me to reset? For some of you in this room, it may be that you need to reset To truly come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that he can then begin to work in you in a new way. For others of you, it may be that that you are a believer, but God needs to do a reset to help you to really pursue him in a new way. Because God can't use us to pursue his work if we're not pursuing him and allowing him to pursue us. And so saying, Lord, I'm going to, I confess that I'm just renewing my commitment to you. I want you to do a new work in me. Or maybe that there's something else that God is is laying before you. Maybe there's a, a sin you need to confess and get rid of. Maybe there's something that's holding you back. And, and the Holy Spirit is identifying that. He's saying that right there in your life needs to go so that I can work in a new way. So in the quietness of this moment, just just there, just you and the Lord, take a moment to pray and seek the Lord. How do you want me to reset, God? Lord, in these moments, we are so grateful. For the way that you speak to us. Lord, I'm thankful for your word that is always so fresh and relevant. Thousands of years after the events happened, we can still use it to apply it to our lives today. Lord, I pray your blessing over this time of reset. God, I pray that you would do a new work in all of us. Lord, I pray you'd bring the reset to me and to Rebecca and to Jerry. Lord, that we'll go back to our places of service refreshed and renewed and encouraged. God, I pray you would do a work here in this church that that they'll be excited about what you have in store for them. 
And so, Lord, in this moment, we're dealing with ourselves. And so, God, for those things that you've revealed to us, I pray, Lord, that if it's to get right with you, that we would do that today. If it's to confess and and unburden ourselves of something in our lives, I pray that we would make that commitment and take care of that today. And, Lord, I pray that we would just be open to your Spirit's work in our lives in a mighty way. Speak to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.